Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature hot stuff from the RHIC, Ant Martyrs, King Tut, and part two of the science of Wolverine. But first up, here's the news with Victoria Bond, Ollie Barand, and Catherine B. Hagg. Scientists Heinz and Walter from the University of Regensburg discovered that when ants are seriously ill, they voluntarily go away from the nest to die, which reduces the chance of them passing their infection to nest mates. They reared a colony of ants in the laboratory and then exposed them to spores of a parasitic fungus that kills ants. What they discovered was that when most worker ants were infected, they deserted the nest in the hours or even days before they died and made their way to a distant foraging area where they died alone, away from the other workers. They left voluntarily and they were not forcibly removed by other worker ants. Now, it's already known that other fungi can manipulate behavior, for example, ants infected with a cydriceps fungus will climb to the top of a stem, kind of like zombies, and then they'll die there, which allows the fungus spores to get dispersed across a, a wider area. But what the scientists found was that it wasn't just the fungus that caused the worker ants to leave the colony. It was also, they found the same behavior in ants dying from unknown causes. This shows that ants actively removed themselves from the nest voluntarily and broke off social interactions with other ants, regardless of the cause of imminent death. Similar behaviors are seen in other social insects. For example, the bumblebee is known to leave the hive when it's infected by fly larvae. This next story is about the hottest thing in the universe. But first, I've got a little quiz for you guys. Can you tell me how many states of matter there are and what they're called. Guys? Three? Mm, there's more than three, I remember. Like, there's obviously three, which is a gas, solid, liquid. Yeah. And then there was another, at least two. Yeah. Plasma and another one. So yeah. a really hot and really cold one. Yeah, you're right, Kat. So there's the three that we deal with every day, gases, liquids, and solids. But then there are two others at the very hot end of the spectrum and the very cold end of the spectrum. The hot one is called, known as plasma. Where, Should I go for the cold one? Uh, yeah, do you know the cold one, Ian? Would that be the Bose-Einstein condensate? You would be oh. exactly right. That's right. When uh, um, matter approaches absolute zero, it forms something that was, until relatively recently, a uh, theoretical um, state of matter known as the Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, my scientific background may be in biology, but there are few things in science that get me more excited than particle accelerators, which are the places where some of these bizarre states of matter have been made. And scientists from the University of Colorado have used a particle accelerator called the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, or RHC, or RIC for short, to create the hottest temperatures in the known universe. 
For those of you out there who don't know what particle accelerators are, they're often a big ring many kilometers in circumference with a vacuum inside that acts as a racetrack for particles. And what these scientists did at the RIC was strip electrons off gold atoms, accelerate the gold ions to immense speeds and smash them into each other millions of times a second. What they created was a so-called quark-gluon plasma at a temperature of up to 7.2 billion degrees Fahrenheit, or just over 4 billion Kelvin by my crude calculation. In other words, 4 billion Kelvin in uh, European billion is a 4 with 12 zeros after it. And that's about um, 250 thousand times hotter than the core of the sun, or 40 times hotter than a supernova, which is an exploding star. These guys can now say that they are the hottest scientists in the universe. And just as a little side note, another team of scientists from the same university had the distinction of having created the first Bose-Einstein condensate 15 years ago. They did this by cooling rubidium atoms to less than 170 thousand billionths, that's with nine zeros, of a degree above absolute zero, causing individual atoms to coalesce into a superatom that behaved as a single superfluid entity. So this research is, this new research is a pretty significant achievement because it helps to recreate conditions similar to what it was like microseconds after the Big Bang and bring us closer to revealing the secrets of the universe. So... Do you guys remember Tutankhamun, um, also referred to as King Tut? I didn't know him personally, but yeah, well, I've didn't. heard of him. Okay. Well, if you, you also heard that he died at a really, really young age when he was just 19. So just nine years into his reign. And you might have heard before that lots of people suggested that he was murdered or other reasons for his death. For, for example, an accident or fall, fall down his chariot or a kick by a horse or another animal new study that just came out using modern genetic testing and computer technology has found evidence that Tutankhamen has been infected with Plasmodium falciparum, which is <laughs> the parasite that causes an often deadly form of malaria. So he actually probably died because of malaria. The scans in the genetic fingerprinting carry out on um, King Tut also show that he had a lot of well, about several disorders, some of which ran in the family. They included a bone disease and a club foot as well. So he was mm. seriously inbred and riddled with disease? Mm-hmm. Sounds like, like most royalty, actually. Yeah. Because they were seen as a godlike figure and they were able to get away with, like, marrying their brothers their siblings, and sisters. Yeah, and or even their daughters. One thing that I like about this story in particular is that it hints at... Um, the, the founding of a new discipline of scientific research mm-hmm. known as uh, molecular Egyptology because they're looking at some of the, um, some of the, the DNA remnants of, uh, like, that they've recovered from King Tut's body. So, Victoria, these are some of the... <laughs> oh, my friends. <laughs> There's a long list of diseases that experts have it's speculated be about. It's great on radio. Including at the result... And then you can list so all the, the diseases. So for the benefit of listeners out there, Kat <laughs> is showing Victoria a very long list of diseases. Which are, take a deep breath, Which we're going to withhold from you. No, not really. 
Marfan syndrome, Wilson-Turner X-linked mental retardation syndrome, Froelich syndrome, Kleinfelter syndrome, androgen insensitivity syndrome, a lot of sex disorders, interestingly, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. aromatase excess syndrome in conjunction with sagittal craniomyositis syndrome, and Antley-Bixler syndrome of a variant form. I don't even know what that last one is. <laughs> must, <laughs> must be a, a godlike characteristic. Tubbs many disorders probably... Um, the reason why he died is they probably weakened his immune system over time and the researchers believe he might have died when, in his immune deficient state, he sustained a sudden leg fracture, possibly introduced by a fall, which snowballed into a life-threatening condition when he contracted malaria. So it was really the malaria was the reason why he died. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Mark West and Dr. Chris Pettigrew, Dr. Boob, discuss part two of the science of making Wolverine. So in today's episode, we're going to really focus in on how to make Wolverine in the laboratory. Dr. Boob, where are we going to start? Well, we'll start with the easy things to get right, and then we'll uh, work on to the more complicated aspects of making our Wolverine. So if we look in terms of strength, how are we going to make someone really strong? And I think in the lab, we'll just go with what's uh, tried and proven on anabolic steroids. Okay. So they won't uh, really give a superhuman strength but it'll still be exceptionally strong. So right. if we give our little Wolverine to be some anabolic steroids, which effectively mimic testosterone, they can actually uh, increase the amount of protein synthesis and add bulk and muscle and bone cells. But the uh, added benefits of doing this will give our wannabe Wolverine a bit more masculinity, such as body hair, and we all know Wolverine's hair and sideburns, Yes, yes. And also a bit of a growth of vocal cords, so you get a deeper, more growly kind of voice, which would suit the character as well. So with one hit, we've given him a bit of strength and uh, the, the appropriate haircut yes. <laughs> and voice. So, Have we also uh, given him testicular cancer? <laughs> I don't know about cancer, but we've certainly reduced the size of it. Right, okay. Well, that's okay. That's all covered up in the movie anyway, so... Exactly, there's... and frankly, it'll be less of a target area when he's in a fight. That's very true, isn't it? That's very true. And because we're creating him in the lab, we don't really need him to reproduce because we can create him. We can reproduce him in the lab. We can reproduce him in the lab. Oh, excellent. Okay. And uh, so we can make his strength. What about some of his uh, animal instincts? Exactly. All right. So if we if we look in terms of eyesight, well, I think we uh, flagged the possibility of a carrot diet um, in the last episode. Uh, carrots supply carotenoids, which uh, can reduce, you know, the discomfort from glare, enhance contrast, and reduce photo stress recovery time. So if you think about how long it takes your eyes to recover after a flash of a camera, yep, that's what I mean by that. Um, so carrots are a great source of them. Also, green leafy veggies. So I'd say a bit of diet would uh, help there, but then the ability to um, replace the lens in a normal eye with a telescopic lens. Okay. So we might be able to magnify everything, Is this... which could be good and bad. I'd say that 
um, I would lean towards doing one eye because you might lose some of the closer in perception yes. if you had two telescopic eyes. Okay. The problem with that might be depth perception. <laughs> so you can imagine our Wolverine might need to squint a bit or just wink a lot. Yes, okay, yes. This is sounding sounding all too easy at the moment. They, they, it is, isn't it? It is. And, and not only that, but if we want to uh, help out with his hearing, we could possibly give him a hearing aid or even a cochlear implant. So we could give him a cochlear implant. And the eye thing you're describing kind of sounds like mm. uh, some stuff I read, I think, recently in National Geographic talking about bionic implants. And you can they can make artificial eyes, well, not mm. not, not that reflect the, uh, the current eye, but they, there's a lot of improvements going on there. Yes, certainly is. So it does sound a little bit too easy, though, doesn't it? It, it sounds does. like I could do this if I wanted well, if I, I wanted I small think... testicles and a and a diet of carrots <laughs> and a hearing aid and a hearing aid. Yes. So what? Uh, where where's the biggest drawback in in all of this? All right. So so now we're getting into the slightly trickier aspect of okay. Well, we'll look at his claws. Yes. How would we go about that? So if we wanted to do it proper natural style, we'd going to need to grow some new bones. I'm, I think we're looking at a minimum of six bones if we've got three claw fingers per arm. Yeah. And the problem with those new bones and them coming in and out of the arm is you're going to need a whole new set of muscles and tendons and ligaments and, and so on yeah. to control their going in and out. But then you're going to need nerves as well to stimulate these muscles and get them in and out. So yeah. to do that, we're going to need a, a serious amount of not so much genes because the genes to make bones and tendons and ligaments are already there, but it's a matter of manipulating the expression of the genes during embryogenesis to grow the bones we want and where we want them during and the right soft tissues as well, and yeah. then linking them to the nerves. So this would uh, involve a whole lot of new regulation that we don't really know about. I, I guess we, we, could, we could try and learn what we could from the, the frog we mentioned last week. We could. Yes, but I, I wouldn't... I think the problem with the frog is that the uh, claws that nip out there are part of the bone structure that they normally use in everyday existence. So we wouldn't be adding, you know, just a, a spur on the end of one of our existing bones. We'd be actually throwing in some new ones. Oh, is that right? So they just flex and these and these claws break the skin and then when yeah. they're calmed down, they just... They don't so much retract as do they just relax back in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, right. So that's that's pretty different to what we're looking to do. We need we need rapid bone generation almost. Yeah. Can you grow bones that quickly? When I broke my arm, it took quite a number of months. Yeah. Um, so bones do take a good eight weeks or so to heal. Uh, younger if you're a child, but I'd say that it's just something that we're going to have to do right from from the off in terms of embryos. So we might need to do in our secret underground lair a little bit of stem cell embryo manipulation. So the bones should probably already be grown. Uh, yeah, I'd say we need them part of the part of the body. And then from from the get go. And then have muscles that do something specifically push for it controlling out. the the claws and That's very interesting. So the one of the one of the problems with that then, let's say we've got that all fine-tuned and brilliant. We're still piercing the skin. So we're going to we're going to have blood everywhere. Exactly. Uh, can we but can we do Wolverine's healing? Healing. Well, Man, we talked a lot about the sea cucumber last time, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Mm. So not only do Malaysians believe the healing properties of sea cucumber, they, they believe them in terms of 
dietary. So you eat a sea cucumber and you get some, some good stuff and maybe even a lotion or a potion made out of sea cucumbers can, can make a bruise go away or make a scar heal a bit better. Oh, okay. So there's that aspect of them. But then some of the uh, research that involves sea cucumber and healing have been quite interesting. So Because they, the re- are, they are the champions of organ regrowth. Correct. And the reason they got that title was their ability to... They'll do something quite remarkable. And I think when I explain this, if you think about how Wolverine might do it at the same time. So if a sea cucumber is crawling along the ocean floor, as they do, and they eat something noxious, you know, something that's not really good for their system, mm-hmm. instead of just pooping it out, what they're able to do is eviscerate most of their entire digestive tract and right. the associated organs and just dump them from the body and then grow new ones straight from scratch. Wow, so they hollow themselves out, essentially, and then start again. exactly. So if we then turn our aspect to Wolverine and imagine him perhaps eating something he shouldn't or getting a a wound to the stomach or even, say, Homer Simpson-style copying a cannonball... (laughs) Yes. ...just be able to say, excuse me, pop behind a tree... And and then uh, expel his entire digestive system... Yes. ...and come back for more. And uh, how long do the sea cucumbers take to regrow their organs? Uh, well, it's not instantaneous. No, I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's possibly the problem. Right. It's all right for the sea cucumber, but for our um, Wolverine character, I'd suggest that it would take at least a month and he'd need to be hooked up to some sort of IV to get the nutrients he needs. So it may not be the best idea of just so taking a- that property straight away. But it's a, it's a stepping stone, because you could imagine if he, if he could regrow organs, you could send him out and he could beat up a whole heap of people and get a whole bunch of injuries. As long as he can make it back, then... Or we could pick him up from the sea. <laughs> that's right, we could pick him up. Uh, it'll be okay. And Yeah, stick a drip on him and he'll be fine. And he'll be fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so the other thing with the sea cucumbers is they're able to regenerate the, the nerves and spinal cords. So there's a lot of work going on at the moment in that area and, and hopefully being able to translate to humans who have suffered you know, paraplegic-type accidents. That's amazing. They can regenerate a, a spinal cord. Do they, yeah. is it, does it work to the extent that you could chop them in half and the end with the brain, I guess? Um, if they, Do they have a brain? Uh, yeah, I would assume they do if they have a spinal cord. So, so the, may not be a particularly good one. But the, but the end that's got the brain, it, it can just grow mm. back the rest of the body almost. Well, I don't know if it'll work if you cut them fully in half, but if you cut the nerve cord, uh, within a month it's able to regenerate itself. Uh, and I'm going to quote a paper here when I say, to an amazingly similar state. That's fantastic, isn't it? So how would we go about putting this in a human? I don't imagine this is just a matter of, of grabbing the organ regeneration gene and, and sticking it in the in our makeup there must there it must be a whole set of things well one of the curious things about it is that the organ regrowth sort of properties are extremely similar to normal wound healing okay and so it may not be that much of a stretch to get that to humans but it still would be yeah no one's still been able to work out exactly what's controlling the organ regrowth and why some animals can and some animals can't. Like we've talked before about, say, lizards growing their tails. Again, yes. you think about lizards and axolotls as well. And it's starfish. They can they can regrow body parts. And then you have other animals, 
such as flies, it can't. And then even more simpler, one of the most studied worms out there, C. elegans, and that, that can't. It has very limited regenerative capacity. So it's, it's an interesting field at the moment. And I think it's possible that it may not take that much manipulation. Stay tuned for part three of The Science of Making Wolverine when Chris and Mark inject metal into your bones. And finally, the news that didn't make the news. Bugging your things, new types of addiction, and a different lunar park. So today I heard that CSIRO has been developing something amazing, miniature sensors which promise to provide the answers to questions that seem to arise regularly in modern office workplaces. For example, where's my pen? Who took my coffee cup? Now, these little sensors, called Fleck Nanos, can be put on these objects, such as a pen or a coffee cup, which tend to go walkabouts. They not only record where your things of importance are, but will record information like the temperature of the object or its power use. So this little tiny device will not only tell you where your coffee mug is, but if it's a perfect temperature for drinking. Or even better, I think you could put this sensor on some cheese that's being important and you can track where it is at all times. What temperature variation did it experience when it was travelling through these different areas? And if it's safe to eat when it reaches its final destination in your fridge. But there is a catch. These tiny transmitters consume a high proportion of energy. So scientists are looking for ways the Fleck Nano can scavenge energy from the environment. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely keen to get a sensor for not only my cheese, which I love, but my keys and wallet and other things that I constantly lose. I just have to wait for another two to three years until it, this technology comes out of the lab. Meanwhile, scientists in Canberra have discovered that a brain chemical that makes bees dance is quite similar to the human pleasure chemical dopamine. The researchers at the Australian National University videoed the dance that bees perform to communicate the location of choice flower patches and learned that the greater the quality of the flower patch, the more vigorously the bees dance to their fellow bees. By studying the brain chemistry of the bees doing the dancing, the researchers found out that this more vigorous dancing was associated with higher levels of optopamine, a chemical similar in bees to dopamine found in humans. Then the scientists decided to mess with the bees. They doped them up with optopamine and then taped the dancing bees when they got back to the hive and discovered that the dancing was far faster and more vigorous than the non-administered bees returning from the same flower patch. So this research has great applications because of how this optopamine works as a reward chemical in bees' brains, just like dopamine does in our brains. Whenever we get a reward stimulus, like a nice hot chocolate, or being somewhere safe, or a reward of a sexual nature, dopamine is released. 
but it can also be artificially released by certain illicit drugs. So it's hoped that in future, new drugs can be tested for any potentially addictive side effects by giving them to bees and seeing how crazy they dance. Now, Kat, mm -hmm. can you tell me the names of the three men who were on the Apollo 11 mission, the one that uh, took the first guys to walk on the moon? Uh, well, obviously, it's Neil Armstrong. Yeah, he's the, he's the famous one. He's the famous one. And Buzz... Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin. So you think yeah, of? Buzz Aldrin. And the third course. one? And the third one is uh, mm, you, no idea. You don't know who he is. <laughs> no, that's that's because like he's the most underappreciated man in history. His name was Michael. His name is Michael Collins, oh. and he he's a man who suffers from what we refer to as George Harrison syndrome, where he's he was the guy who's overshadowed by the other two more famous guys. Well, last year we celebrated the 40th anniversary of the first humans walking on the moon. And the site where Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed, known as the Tranquility Base, has been named as a state historical resource by the California State Historical Resource Commission. Now, this step means that it is well on the way to becoming a world heritage site, or in other words, a lunar park. So that's one small step for space heritage protection. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, if you want to write us some nice praise, if you want to tell us what you want to hear, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond, Catherine Behag, Holly Barand, and Mark West. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.